I'm Avery Smith, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. I've been promising an episode focused on interfaith stuff, or perhaps I might word it better as religious pluralism, for a little while now. And finally, here it is. Or actually, here's part one of it. I decided I'll split this discussion into two parts, just because it's a lot of content for a brain to absorb in one sitting, and it would make for a real lengthy episode anyway. So here's part one, and I plan to have the second half out in early or mid-December. What you'll find in these two episodes is a lot of excerpts from different authors who discuss the need for interfaith relationships and how being able to bring our whole selves into our faith as well as to respect the whole self of all others truly enriches any person's faith, or for atheists and others of no religion or faith tradition, a person's philosophy or code of ethics or connection to humanity. In part one, you might be surprised to see I'm bringing in two authors who are not actually trans themselves. They are both cisgender women, and both Christians at that. However, what these two women have to say about the need for interfaith respect is life-giving stuff for all of us, cisgender and trans and non-binary and otherwise. To explain why I want to have an episode that only focuses on the interfaith half of this interfaith trans podcast, let's start with the fact that we trans folk are a vast community, with members in every religion you can think of, as well as atheist and humanist communities, and so on. I've talked in previous episodes about solidarity, about how not one of us is free until all of us are free. And if you believe that, then you must include solidarity for those persons oppressed because of their faith in your activism. We trans folk know what it is like to be chopped up into pieces so that people only have to accept the parts of us they find acceptable. Thus, we must recognize that we have to acknowledge people's faith in order to support them fully. Our activism must be holistic. Moreover, you will notice in the excerpts I share in these two episodes just how much interfaith relationships and religious pluralism involve liminality and a breaking away from dualisms and binary thinking. The way that advocates for religious pluralism talk about letting go of being the one right religion and of being open to explore the liminal spaces between different beliefs is pretty intrinsically non-binary. Expanding on that, those of us who are trans and non-binary hold unique insight into what it means to understand things in a not-binary way, in a way that defies absolutism and extremism and dualism. We can be the ideal mediators in interfaith conversations. Plus, So many trans persons of all sorts of religious backgrounds know the pain of religious trauma. We need to be part of interfaith relationships and discussions so that we can help fight 
transphobia in every religion. The decolonization that will liberate us will also liberate those of marginalized religions. And that decolonization can only be achieved if all of us band together. As to the choice to have this first episode of the two focus on Christian voices, for those of us who are Christians living in Christian-dominant countries, such as myself in the United States, and especially those of us like me who are white Christians, there tends to be extra complexity to the idea of interfaith relationships built on mutual respect. If we don't own up to the fact that our Christian traditions have been and continue to be interlinked with empire, with white supremacy, with settler colonialism, and have done and continue to do incredible harm, there is no way we can even begin to engage meaningfully in religious pluralism. If we don't strive constantly to decolonize our personal beliefs and our faith communities, if we don't work to re-envision ourselves not as the only true or right religion, but only one of many equally legitimate systems, then we cannot successfully engage in mutual relationships with persons of other or no faiths. So that's why I'm focusing on Christianity for this episode. In part two, I'll be sharing passages from persons of other faith traditions and uplifting their insights as members of traditions that are marginalized in their nation. But for now, let's dive into the wisdom shared by our first author. The first book I'll be sharing from is Barbara Brown Taylor's 2018 text, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. Barbara Brown Taylor is a white Christian, an Episcopal priest, who is one of the United States' best-loved preachers. She's also a professor and an author of truly beautiful theological books that are easy to read while also being deeply insightful and lingering with you long after you've finished them. Holy Envy focuses on Taylor's experiences with teaching world religions and exploring what it means to be a Christian committed to her own faith while also being respectful of persons of other religions and being open to having her own faith transformed by them. I'll just go ahead and read the book's opening passage. The book in your hands is a small window on a large subject. Set at a private liberal arts college in the foothills of the Appalachians, it is the story of a Christian minister who lost her way in church and found a new home in the classroom, where the course she taught most often was religions of the world. As soon as she recovered from the shock of meeting God in so many new hats, she fell for every religion she taught. When she taught Judaism, she wanted to be a rabbi. When she taught Buddhism, she wanted to be a monk. It was only when she taught Christianity that the fire sputtered, because her religion looked so different once she saw it lined up with the others. She always promised her students that the studying of other faiths would not make them lose their own. Then she lost hers, or at least the faith she started out with. This is the story of how that happened. And what happened next? End quote. Taylor's story is about discovering the difference between the living water and the well, as she puts it, in one of several metaphors she offers to describe Christianity's place among other world religions and philosophies. 
as she says, the time she spent as an Episcopal priest before becoming a professor offered her just one of many possible buckets for dipping into the well that was the church. And, she explains, as clearly as I could smell the elemental depths of the divine mystery every time I bent over to draw some of it up, the well was not the water. It was a container and not the source. And the reason Taylor ended up leaving her priestly role, as she says, was that my Episcopal well, beloved as it was, was no longer enough for me to live on. I was dry as a bone, end quote. But of course, as Taylor discovers over the course of the book, just because one well can no longer offer the nourishment a person needs does not mean that those elemental depths of divine mystery have dried up. Thus began her quest across world religions and the development of what she calls holy envy, an attraction to or hungriness for elements of other religions or faiths than one's own. Here is one of the first passages where Taylor introduces this idea of holy envy. Contrary to popular opinion, all religions are not alike. Their followers see the world in very distinct ways. Their understandings of the human condition proceed from different assumptions, leading them to propose different remedies. If I had been able to resist the wisdom they offered me, if I had been able to keep my Christian glasses on so that I only saw what those prescription lenses allowed me to see, then I might have emerged unchanged. But that is not how it went for me. Instead, I found things to envy in all of the traditions I taught. Some were compatible with Christian faith, like the Jewish Sabbath or the Buddhist focus on compassion. Others forced a choice, like the Muslim understanding that God has no offspring, or the Hindu view that humans create their own destiny through many lifetimes. This left some important questions on the table. Could my faith be improved by the faith of others? End quote. That question forms the heart of Taylor's book and the heart of this episode. Can my faith be improved by the faith of others? Unfortunately for those of us who belong to Christianity, and particularly the Christianity of the Western world, with its roots tangled up in and tainted by white supremacy and settler colonialism, the journey to interfaith openness is a difficult one. Barbara Brown Taylor describes how integral fear is to this kind of Christianity. A fear of hell and damnation for ourselves that convinces us that even peeking around the doorway into another religion can threaten our eternal souls. And a fear of hell for others that causes us to pressure and even force them to assimilate into our beliefs rather than respecting their own path as equally legitimate to ours. Here is an excerpt from Holy Envy where Taylor addresses this fear that poisons so many Christians by comparing it to the respect for other traditions that can exist within a person of faith. In a book called Acts of Faith, author and activist Ibu Patel tells a story about the time he and his friend Kevin were granted an audience with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, India. 
after His Holiness commented on a small, empty bowl that Kevin wore on a chain around his neck. Kevin told the Dalai Lama how many years he had spent studying the Buddhist concept of emptiness, which seemed to have a lot in common with the Jewish concept of ayin. You are a Jew? the Dalai Lama asked him. When Kevin said yes, His Holiness said, Judaism and Buddhism are very much alike. You should learn more about both and become a better Jew. I envy that. My tradition has a hard time blessing strong bonds to other traditions, especially those whose truths run counter to our own. I have responded to the fragrance of Buddhism, and it is making me a little anxious. Anxious enough to wonder if my attraction to other traditions makes Jesus mad. For most of my Christian life, I have been taught that God is a jealous God. And Jesus did seem forlorn when the people he invited to follow him went in another direction. I would be leaving something important out of this book if I did not own up to a palpable fear that grabbed me the first few times my envy of another tradition drew me over to smell someone else's rose. The fear was laced with flames and pitchforks. When it got a hold of me, I was no longer an adult. I was a little child, scared to death of incurring my Heavenly Father's wrath and losing his love forever. The quiet revolution of seeing the world in another way helped me with that by reminding me that I am riding a wave made from the much greater ocean. My best view of the divine reality is still a partial view. I am riding on the truth of that, trusting God alone to guide my wave and carry me to shore. End quote. Later in the book, Taylor continues to examine the issues that cause so many Christians in particular to struggle with interfaith openness. Alongside fear, this next passage shows us that we also have to grapple with a desire to be the most right the best, the most favored by God. Here's the quote. Most of us prefer the scripture passages that grant us special privilege. For Christians, the most potent one is John 14, 6, in which Jesus says, No one comes to the Father except through me. Here is the bedrock assurance that Christians alone have access to God. Could it be that our favorite verses are the ones that make us feel most right? I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. That is something else Jesus says in John's gospel. He does not elaborate, but I like imagining the God of many sheep, many folds, many favorites, many mansions. This is how far my holy envy has brought me, from fearing that Jesus will be mad at me for smelling other people's roses, to trusting that Jesus is the way that embraces all ways. Because there is only one of me, I can only walk one way at a time. But that does not prevent me from believing that other people might be walking their ways with equal devotion and goodwill. No one owns God. 
God alone knows what is good. For reasons that will never be entirely clear, God has a soft spot for religious strangers, both as agents of divine blessing and recipients of divine grace, to the point that God sometimes chooses one of them over people who believe they should, by all rights, come first. This is a great mystery, but it does nothing to obscure the great commandment. In every circumstance, regardless of the outcome, the main thing Jesus has asked me to do is to love God and my neighbor as religiously as I love myself. The minute I have that handled, I will ask for my next assignment. For now, my hands are full. End quote. Another similar quote in Holy Envy on that same topic of no one owning God explains a little further why this religious diversity isn't only okay, but is actually a beautiful gift. Here it is. No one owns God. The great religions may possess genuine revelations of God's nature and purpose. Their most gifted listeners may truly have discerned a divine call to special purpose, both for themselves and their communities. Traditions that do not speak of God have certainly perceived truths about the human condition and have conceived inspired ways to transcend it. But whatever we mean when we say God is not fully captured by any of these traditions. If it could be, it would not be God. End quote. So basically what Taylor talks about in a lot of the book is how it is only when all of our different understandings of God and humanity come together that we get anything that is even close to something like a full picture of divinity. Alone, none of us can see the whole thing. Another metaphor that Taylor offers up for Christianity's place among other religions talks about this very thing. Here's the passage. In his book, God and the Universe of Faiths, British theologian John Hick makes a compelling argument. Before Copernicus, he says, earthlings believed they occupied the center of the universe. And why not? Earth was the place from which they saw everything else. It was the ground under their feet, and as far as they could tell, everything revolved around them. Then, Copernicus proposed a new map of the universe, with the sun at the center and all the planets orbiting around it. His proposal raised religious questions as well as scientific ones, but he was right. The sun, not the earth, holds the planets in our solar system together. Hick argues that it is past time for a Copernican revolution in theology, in which God assumes the prime place at the center, and Christianity joins the orbit of the great religions circling around. Like the scientific revolution, this one requires the surrender of primary place and privileged view. Absolute truth moves to the center of the system, leaving people of good faith with meaningful perceptions of the truth from their own orbits. This new map does not require anyone to give up the claim to uniqueness. It only requires the acceptance of unique neighbors, who concur that the brightness they see at the center of everything exceeds their ability to possess it. The Franciscan father Richard Rohr had his eye on a different planetary body when he said, We are all of us pointing toward the same moon, 
and yet we persist in arguing about who has the best finger. Eventually, all people of faith must decide how they will think about and respond to people of other and no faiths. Otherwise, they will be left at the mercy of their worst impulses when push comes to shove and their fear deadens them to the best teachings of their religion. End quote. So that's Barbara Brown Taylor. Next up, we have Caitlin B. Curtis with her 2020 book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. Curtis is a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, a Christian, and a poet who speaks on faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples. Native is about her journey to return to her roots and embrace how her Potawatomi heritage enriches her faith. Born to a Potawatomi father and a mother of European descent, Curtis lost touch with her indigenous culture after moving away from the reservation where she spent her early years to live with her mother. Once she grew up and had two children of her own, Curtis experienced a deep yearning to reconnect to her heritage. As she did so, she came to fully realize the violence of the kind of assimilation that was forced upon her people over and over again, and that made it easier for her to blend into white evangelicalism instead of bringing all aspects of herself into her faith community. So let's start with excerpts from her book that describe the allure of assimilation in the face of violence from Christian colonization. Once the Potawatomi arrived in Oklahoma, we were all but assimilated into white, conservative Christian culture, which included receiving allotments of land and making deals with the government. For many of us, but not everyone, we were set. And that's exactly what assimilation does. It offers you a trade, your God-given identity for a chance to be seen, to be comfortable, to fit in with ease. For a white-coated Potawatomi girl, this was easy, because I didn't know any different. And then there's another quote later in the book. In Baptist Sunday school growing up, I asked no questions, because it was believed that the men and women in my churches knew best. But what was happening under the surface was a slow and steady assimilation into Western American Christianity what I now see as the mix of empire and God that permeates so many white American churches. The problem with the white evangelical church is that assimilation is subtle. When you walk through that sanctuary door, the assumption is that you participate, you oblige, and you don't cause a fuss. What I learned in my church growing up was how to be a devout evangelical, but... I was also being taught that for my identity to matter, I must assimilate and take on the American dream as best as I could. My life became about pleasing an Americanized God who really cannot be pleased. We remember that people have been oppressed by the church, oppressed by the name of Jesus, and told that they cannot possibly know God in the way they were born to know God and that it has resulted in splits and fractures in the world. Finally, in one other excerpt elsewhere in the book, Curtis writes, Thich Nhat Hanh says in his book Living Buddha, Living Christ, 
People kill and are killed because they cling too closely to their own beliefs and ideologies. When we believe that ours is the only faith that contains the truth, violence and suffering will surely be the result. The problem isn't that we search for truth. The problem is that we become obsessed with our belief that we hold the truth and we destroy entire cultures in the process. The true and essential work of all religion is to help us recognize and recover the divine image in everything, says Richard Rohr. End quote. Because of this experience of assimilation that Curtis and her people face, much of her book is about her journey back to her roots as a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation and how she brings that into her Christian faith. As the memoir unfolds, Curtis shows us how she eventually came to see that her Christian faith was not harmed, but in fact deeply enriched by her Potawatomi heritage. She compares the distorted violence and forced conformity of white supremacist Christianity to the truth of a God and of a Christ who love all beings, of all cultures and faiths. Because being human and discovering the constant layering of identity is a journey, so too religion is about journeying. My experience with Christianity is a journeying story. I believe it is a story full of rights and wrongs, but for me, the origin is always the love of God. A love that has been greatly distorted by the colonizer church throughout the centuries. I believe that Christianity rooted in the love of Christ has no room for power that oppresses, but advocates for power that breathes only humility, a vision of the feminine divine, as author Meribai Starr articulates so well in her book Wild Mercy. This is the faith I am called back to again and again, despite being brought up in a conservative evangelical faith. This, the universal Christ, who, in grace and love, holds all things, and all people, and all creatures in that grace, is what gives me hope in this world. The universal Christ, who is not a colonizer, who does not seek after profit or create empires to rule over the poor or to oppress people, is constantly asking us to see ourselves as we fit in this sacredly created world. It is what my Potawatomi ancestors saw when they prayed to Kiche Mnido, to Ma Mugosnan, and is what our relatives still see when they pray today, a sacred belonging that spans time and generations and is called by many names. Today it is what I continue to see in my own faith, not a Christianity bound by a sinner's prayer and an everyday existence ruled by gender-divided Bible studies and accountability meetings, but a story of faith that is always bigger, always more inclusive, always making room at a bigger and better table full of lavish food that has already been prepared for everyone and for every created thing. That is the journey ever-evolving, ever-creating, ever-giving hope, and tethering us back to ourselves and to one another. And so I loosely call myself a Christian. And so I also call myself indigenous. I am Potawatomi, constantly being called to my belonging with the love that only creator, Mamu Gosnan, can hold, has always held, and always will hold for all of us. It is a difficult journey, and I don't know where it will lead. 
years from now, I may no longer call myself a Christian, no longer engage with the church. And if so, I will still call this journey sacred as the thing that it is, the truths it has taught me, the people it has brought into my life. My faith is not a faith to be held over others, or a faith that forces others into submission, but an inclusive, universal faith, constantly asking what the gift of mystery truly is, and how we can better care for the earth we live on, who constantly teaches us what it means to be humble. End quote. In other passages of the book, Curtis offers examples of how her Potawatomi heritage and Christian faith coalesce into something beautiful and powerful and deeply needed by the church. The decolonized Christianity she envisions uncovers the abiding love of the divine for all peoples and all of creation, and the call to hold one another in solidarity, to support and learn from, rather than eradicate, one another's different insights into the divine. As I study the creation stories of different traditions with my sons, the Hebrew creation stories found in the Bible, or the seven grandfather teachings of my Potawatomi culture, alongside the teachings of the Gospels of Jesus, I find that we must learn what it means to live in an integrated way that honors the cultures and the people around us so that we can, together in solidarity, learn to go home. This means we pay attention to the horrors of cultural appropriation, and that as we engage with one another and honor one another, we do not steal from one another and further continue cycles of colonization. We decolonize along the way. The seven grandfather teachings from my tribe call us back to the important and central tenets of our culture, to humility, honesty, wisdom, bravery, truth, love, and respect. In other words, through these teachings, we work out the meaning of our own identity. We are taught to carry these gifts in the right way, with the right heart, to honor this earth, her creatures, and the people we encounter along the way. The deeper I lean into these teachings, the more I find the interconnectedness among all religions, all faiths, all cultures. Our work is to call each other home, to call to one another's spirits and say, this is for you. This is what it means to be human, to love and be loved. Let us learn from one another as we go. Finally, here's one last quote where Curtis talks about what her Potawatomi heritage brings to her Christian faith. As a child, Without knowing my own Potawatomi language, I may have missed understandings of God other than what I received within the traditional Southern Baptist churches I was part of. Knowing, for example, why we go to powwows, the significance of ceremony, dancing as prayer, the important rhythm of the drums, and the connectedness of community might have given me a different idea of how we build community in a lasting and sustainable way. I might have understood why the trees have so much to teach us and why water should be protected. That is why it matters so much that many Native people are returning despite the work of the church and the American government to break those ties. End quote. 
While embracing her Potawatomi culture has brought new richness into her Christian faith, Curtis continues to be aware that the other part of her identity, the European part, must also be reckoned with. I am a descendant of Potawatomi people and European people, a descendant of both oppressed and oppressor. I come from ancestors who were both colonized and the colonizers. So how do I reckon with this? I call myself a Christian, and yet how do I reckon with settler colonial Christianity that is influenced by empire? We are taught about who Jesus is, but in Western Christianity, we are taught a diluted, whitewashed version. Settler colonial Christianity puts itself at the center of everything as the sole power, and evangelism becomes a tool used to erase other cultures and religions from the people whom Christians are meant to serve. Settler colonial Christianity is a religion that takes, that demeans the earth and the oppressed, and that holds people in these systems without regard for how Jesus treated people. So, to be part of a colonizing religion, I have to constantly ask, who am I following? The empirical religion born of men who wanted and still want to rule the world in their own image, or something different? I am a woman, but what does it mean to embody that in a toxic, patriarchal society and church system? It means I listen to the voice that has been silenced. It means I give room for colonization to be uprooted in my life and the life of my family. It means we have regular conversations about our own white privilege in the spaces we inhabit. That closes this first of two interfaith-focused episodes. What do you think? How do the various identities that form you interact with one another, enrich one another? How can your own faith or philosophy be nourished and transformed by reaching out to persons of other beliefs? And how can you do that while being mindful of avoiding appropriation and perpetuating colonization? As I said at the start, the next episode in December will bring you authors of faiths other than Christianity. We've got Ibu Patel, who is Muslim, and Jonathan Thunderword, who is an omni-faith, multi-spiritual, black trans elder. And I may add in some other voices if I dig something up. Join me then, and in the meantime, go break some binaries and be a blessing to the world with your life. (music) 